Hello, and welcome to Talking in Shul, a roundtable podcast. I'm your host, Tamar Fox, and I've got Zahava Stadler joining us from Toronto. Hi, Zahava. Hey, Tamar. And Mimi Lewis is joining us from Somerville, Mass. Hi, Mimi. Hey, Tamar. And this month, we're joined by Hannah Leibovitz, assistant professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. Hannah is joining us from Dallas, Texas. Welcome, Hannah. Hey, thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you here. This month, we're talking about the story that is unavoidable in the Jewish world right now, which is the tunnels under 770, which is Chabad headquarters in Brooklyn. And we're talking about how the story has morphed, changed, what it means for our Jewish communities, and how the various takes on it have helped and hurt. We're so excited to have Hana here to talk about it with us. So Hana, can you tell us a little bit about your background with Chabad? Yeah, sure. So I grew up in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, which made headlines a couple years ago because of a horrible tragedy there. And before those headlines, <laughs> um, it actually was or is pretty fairly well known in the Chabad community for being a very strong Lubavitch enclave. And I grew up in that enclave. My friends and I affectionately sometimes refer to it as Little Russia. It was a combination of old school Lubavitchers who had come from these like, you know, Mecca institutions of Crown Heights, places in Eretz Yisrael, and of course, Russia, old school Lubavitchers, as well as Russian refugees who had resettled in the area and come closer to Judaism through connections with Lubavitch, along with people who were, you know, totally American, had not previously had connections to religion, and were also brought in to religion through Lubavitch, so what we call Bali Chuva. And the community was very strongly old school, set up by Rabbi Posner, who was a shliach of the Rebbe, almost 100 years ago at this point. Very, very old school. It was strongly Russian. I'm going to get into this shortly because uh, I know we'll have a couple more questions about like sort of how Chabad works. But it was strongly Russian in the sense that it was a little bit mafia-ish, to be quite honest, in, in, in some good ways. I remember when I was six years old, there was a girl, her name was Mushki, I won't say her last name, but Mushki was in school with us one year, and then the next year, Mushki was not there anymore, and Mushki's family was asked, or not really asked, to leave the community because they were promoting some beliefs, which again, we're going to get into shortly, they were promoting certain beliefs that mainstream Chabad did not like anymore, this was shortly after the Rebbe had passed away, and that's sort of how the community ran. When the problem happened, certain leaders took care of it. You just would blink and that person would be gone. So growing up as a kid, I definitely noticed some things here and there. Where did that family go? How come this policy changed in the school? I went to the Chabad school through eighth grade. My family and my parents themselves are not Lubavitch, but they were sort of what I call friends of. So friendly enough with Lubavitch, though not being Lubavitch themselves, um, they were not Balichuva, they were firm from birth, not Lubavitch, but also had relatives that were Lubavitch. So knew enough about the community to feel that we were very much welcome and embedded. Me and um, I, I have six siblings. We all went to the Chabad school until high school. And so it's really a, a, it really formed my whole perspective, my connection to Judaism. That was my entire youth, all my friends, everyone. Then I uh, left there, I went to uh, a, high, a different high school in the community, went to a Beis Yaakov seminary, so really kind of tried out the Litvish shtick for a little bit, 
was very yeshivish for a short period of my life and then married a Lubavitcher and fell right back into all of it. And um, now, you know, openly and happily Chabad, got several pictures of the Rebbe around my house, just not not one in this room, and raising my children to uh, be Lubavitchers and to identify fully as Lubavitch. My husband's family, uh, also very strongly Lubavitch. In fact, they're what we call Gej Lubavitchers. So their family goes back old school all the way to Russia, being super Lubavitch. His grandfather was very close with the Freer Rebbe, who was the Rebbe before, the Rebbe that we all know. So deep, deep Lubavitch roots, but also a little bit of an outsider perspective. My husband went to the Mir for Yeshiva in Israel. So we both come from this world of understanding Chabad, being embedded in Chabad, but also not always being in Chabad. We're also two natural sociologists. So we talk a lot about the community and things that have been going on. So when Zahava reached out and asked if I'd be on the pod, I was like, yes. <laughs> I think I responded in four minutes or something. Yeah, and I had worried that this might be too sensitive a topic for you to speak to and I shouldn't have worried, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, and we can get into that. I, I think that this is a sensitive topic. My frustration with the lack of it, of sensitivity, is actually coming from within the Jewish community, not per, not in Chabad, obviously, but in the Orthodox Jewish male-dominated world of what the hawk is and what we talk about and what's interesting. I did see a lot of rhetoric that was just very very uncomfortable and insensitive and not considering the fact that Lubavitch really is and, and the Chabad really is a Hasidus. It has a Rebbe, it has a following, it has it has its own culture, its own minhagim. It, it, it really means something to people. It's not just the place that you go when you're stuck somewhere and you don't have a meal. And unfortunately, I think it's been reduced to that and it's been reduced to a joke. And when I think people saw what was going on, they enjoyed the opportunity to be able, and I say enjoy because it it did seem like they were trying to make fun and they enjoyed the opportunity to jump on Chabad and say, oh, what's going on? Of course, Lubavitchers are nuts. Like they've got a place in Honolulu. Like who does that? You know, I, I think there's this sense that the world has that Chabad is just out there and doing whatever and it's all just fun and game. So let's just make fun of the fact that their shul was destroyed and let's not dig any deeper than that and, you know, just have fun. And unfortunately, what then happened from there and, and I don't want to take up too much time, you know, just with my own dialogue. And I, I'd love to hear from, you know, your questions and everything. But I think what happened from there was that the world tapped into that insensitive nature and that insensitive rhetoric. And it went all over the place. And then, of course, the anti-Semitic stuff came in too. But it, it really, as I was watching it unfold, it came from within, right? It was like the the call came from the house <laughs> the the people who were the first to say we can delegitimize this movement we can make fun of these people were other from people particularly men and and even the from tiktok account was the first on twitter was the first one to start reporting on it and they were making fun from the start so it's not it wasn't surprising to me that then anti-semites jumped on it to further make fun and it, it really was a very sensitive topic but one that i'm happy to jump into with this crowd because you all are awesome we're so happy that you're here and yeah i guess we've been talking a little bit around what what has happened in the past now like three weeks um and i think like part of my 
my experience as a consumer of news about this story is that, like, it seems like the story has shifted dramatically in the last two weeks. Like, the first thing I heard was, like, there was tunnels under 770 and the women's mikvah. And, like, that was kind of, like, all that people were saying at first, which makes it sound like something creepy. And then, like, the story has shifted. Like, it, maybe it was from COVID. Maybe it was something. Like, there's just been so many, for lack of a better term, like, theories about what actually was going on that it was very hard to feel like I had any real grounding in the story. And I do think that that, the, like, many conflicting theories did kind of lead to people making light of it because it was, like, it seemed like it, it was hard to figure out what it was. And so I think people default to humor, not to excuse it. I just think that's where that kind of came from. But I would love for your, like, to hear both, like, what your experience was of beginning to hear about it, if you were reading about it or hearing from friends or whatever. Um, and then just, like, give us what what your understanding is of what's been going on. Yeah, so the story really starts decades ago. Like I was saying about Chabad being very Russian, very like mafia mobish in a certain kind of way. There is a culture within Chabad of um, this like mass expansion culture. It, it's like I said, it's very Russian. It's very um, like colonialist. And Russia is unique in its relationship to the Enlightenment, to science, to, to these sort of things that brought a lot of Western Europe and, of course, the United States into a liberal democracy. Russia purposely rejected those and instead has created its own internal culture and its, its own internal understandings of the world and an expansion mindset about those understandings. And, of course, we see this in global geopolitics, but it also infiltrates into the norms of social groups that have come out of that, particularly a social group like Chabad. And the way that any Hasidus works, or Hasidus, depending on your kind of, <laughs> the way you pronounce it. Hasidut. Yeah, your, your relationship with Yiddish at various points in the Jewish landscape. So depending on, you know, where you're from, where your Hasidic court is located, that's how your Hasidus runs. The Chabad Hasidus, going all the way back, was always in these Russian territories. Its sense of the expansion of its court was very Russian in mindset. Go to this place, convince these people this is the type of Hasidus that is best for them. Share this Torah with those people, bring them into the court. And Chabad was one of the first Hasidic groups to create a network of institutions to expand their court. The Rebbe Rashab was going out and doing outreach even before outreach was a concept. At the time where people were thinking in isolation mindset, Chabad was already considering an expansion mindset. That underlies a lot of the way that Chabad operates. It's why Chabad yeshivas were still going even during World War II. It's why there's this sort of, like, if we cannot expand, we cannot live perspective within the Hasidic community. And it's unique. It really is. And it it's not the same as other groups. It also allows for, you know, this broad expansion of the group to the point that, like I said earlier, to some people, it becomes meaningless. And it's just the place where you go if you need a meal. It's not actually a cohesive social community. That comes later. When the last Lubavitch Rebbe, that we call the Rebbe, when he became Rebbe in the 1950s, he 
essentially announced that this is the Dar Mashiach. This is the generation that is going to bring the Messiah, which is the ultimate expansion, if you think about it, right? It's the ultimate experience of total Jewish expansion. And it's a little uncomfortable. I know that I'm using this terminology, but it, it is really what it is. And it's not bad, right? It, it, it's also for us the ultimate redemption. It's the ultimate experience of not having to hide to be a Jew. It's why for many people, Israel is so significant, right? So it really is a lot of the fabric of Jewish life. And when the Rebbe became Rebbe, he said that we are going to bring Mashiach. Many people interpreted this to mean that he himself was the Messiah and that this was his statement or the beginnings of his statements regarding his own messianic desires and his own messianic leadership. After the beginning of his um, his his rule as the Rebbe, his dynasty, there's this massive shift in global Jewry, partially due to Israel, the Six-Day War, which is called the Balchuva movement. So we suddenly see many, many, many people coming back to Judaism or coming back to religious Jewish practice and it's a massive shift from where we used to be, where we were hemorrhaging individuals, right? There were there were people who had grown up religious who, why would they ever have stayed religious? And suddenly we see the opposite. People have grown up irreligious, becoming religious. And this helps people to believe, again, that the Rebbe is Mashiach, that the Rebbe is bringing the ultimate Messiah. He's bringing these people closer to Judaism and, and that he is the Messiah. But then something wild happens and that's the death of the Rebbe. And that shakes up the entire community because truly and truly, I, I can't stress this enough, there are people who believed he would never die. They believed he was not human. And that's why he was able to accomplish the things he was able to accomplish. That's why the world seemed to just bend at his will because they believed he was not human. And then he died. And a group, a subgroup within the Lubavitch community refused to believe that, that he actually died and refused to believe that he was not the Mashiach. And this is where we get into like Chabad kind of being Christian in that mindset, uh, along with their kind of expansion mindset. And this subgroup is known as the Mishachists, the people who believe that there is still this Messianic dynasty in the world, that the Rebbe is carrying that mantle, and that not just it's up to us now to take it on, we need to continue to treat the world as if it still has the Rebbe in it. Shortly before the Rebbe passed away, he actually made it really clear that he was not the Messiah. Uh, he did so several times, actually, so he can't really be blamed for this belief. But in particular, he said, do not rely on me. I did all I could. Obviously, I could not bring Mashiach. So he clearly said, I didn't do it. It didn't happen yet but I want you all to take on this in your hearts and to live up through my legacy. And he actually set up different institutions to help um, support that and create all of these uh, Chabad affiliates across the globe. Today, there are actually more shlichim, more messengers of the Rebbe than there were when the Rebbe was alive. So it's it's definitely continued and been sustained, but he did not encourage the Mishachist. However, they kind of popped up anyway. They they continue to pop up over and over and over again. And they have such a strong hold on the Hasidists that several times they have created like so much drama that the non-Mishachists have just said like, okay, we can't fight with you anymore. Fine, just whatever. That includes taking over the Chabad Yeshiva in Svat. 
they have a huge following in Svat, in Israel in general. The Mishachas are very intense in Israel. And when I say intense, I mean to the point that if there is a gathering, they will have a seat for him. They will have a parting of the crowd as if he is walking through. They will still treat the world as if the Rebbe is in it. Now, these Mishachists do not officially own 770. And the reason it's important to say that because 770 Eastern Parkway, uh, which is the central shul and kind of the, the central institution of Lubavitch, it's owned, it's, it's under ownership. It is not owned by individuals who affiliate as Mishachists. However, like I said, many times there have been fights over different things that happen in 770 or different practices. And the Mishachists become so loud and unfortunately so violent because that's what extremist groups do. And the non-Mishachists have just sort of given up and said, you know, fine, whatever, we're not going to fight you over this. It's almost like, you know, in any uh, political economic system, there's these extremists on all ends, right? And the middle sometimes just says, fine, we don't want to fight with you on this. And that's that's been happening in Chabad for the last 30 years. Now that friend Mushki that I mentioned, and this is why I didn't want to say her last name, her family was asked to leave because her father was teaching Meshachist writings to individuals in the community, and it was found out, and the head shliach of the community was not Meshachist, and decided this was not acceptable, we cannot have anyone in our community be Meshachist and teach that the Rebbe is still alive and that the Rebbe is Meshiach, and that's why he was told that he had to leave. So the family had to pick up. They could no longer be affiliated with that community. Now, the next community that he went to was a Mishachist community. The head shliach there did allow for those things. So even as a child, I was aware that this dynamic was occurring. Now, as an adult, it's very common that around the Rebbe's yard site, the Mishachists will pop up even in kind of the normal standard mainstream WhatsApp chats, right? You know, as the Rebbe's yard site approaches, we all know the Rebbe's really not gone, you know, like this, you know, one of those ridiculous tirades. <laughs> and then everyone sort of ignores it and asks for the recipe that they were looking for before the tirade, <laughs> you know, jumped in. But it is still there and it still happens. And the approach typically has been, let's ignore it or let's simply say, you know, fine, you can have this little thing. Now comes the tunnels. So what happened a couple of weeks ago? Um, and, you know, Tamar, to your point about there not being accurate information, I do want to say what happened. And I also want to share my experience and kind of trying to work through that information. So there was a story that broke in Crown Heights that um, there were police at 770 and that these young, like, Svatim, that was the terminology used, individuals from Svat, they are destroying the shul. Then it's like, why are they destroying the shul? Why are they tearing apart chunks of the shul? Why were the cops there? What's happening? Well, it turns out that under 770, there were these tunnels that were being built. Okay. Uh, it actually, that actually, that part actually didn't strike me as strange, and I'll get to that in just a second. It turns out that there were these illegal tunnels being built. The city found out, came to try to fill them. And these young Svatim like lost it on them. And now they're going to get arrested and all of that. So my initial reaction when I heard about the tunnels was that I bet they're trying to expand the shul. And that is actually, in fact, what was going on. But I also know that the world was first being told 
it was a mikvah and it was under the women's section. None of those things to me conflict with what essentially was trying to happen, which is that at some point several years ago, these individuals who are mishachists, who hold on to these very strong beliefs that the Rebbe is still alive, finally decided we are just going to expand the shul, which it is, it is fairly small and contained, but not because logistically we need more space, but because this needs to be the Rebbe's shul, it needs to be Mashiach's shul. And before the Rebbe passed away, he had mentioned that one of his goals or something the shul needed was to be expanded. So when I first heard that there are tunnels under 770, that was what I thought. They probably have been excavating out the shul, not surprised at all that they didn't pull permits, not surprised at all that they didn't tell the city, like that did not surprise me one bit. And they're probably just trying to like build out. And if you know the dynamics happening in Chabad, you know exactly who the rebel rousers are, who probably would have done it. You know that Yehuda Krinsky, who's technically the head of Chabad and like running 770, probably kind of knew and kind of didn't think it was such a big deal because they're just excavating out and maybe at some point they may get official. Like it just made sense. But watching those like kids or young adults tear apart the shul actually made me cry because that was the point where I realized the extremism is so intense that they are willing to destroy themselves rather than like give give an inch. And it reminded me of the stories of the Kanayim at the time of the second base Hamedash. And it says that, you know, they they burnt down the storage houses of grain so that people would be forced to fight rather than just, um, you know, like take shelter and not fight against the Romans that were coming in. I'm pretty sure that's how the story goes. So that it struck me because that's a model of Jewish life that we reject in the mainstream and that for centuries we've rejected and said, we do not destroy our own or we do not destroy ourselves on the altar of some ideology. We live a real life and we respect real things. And watching them tear it apart, also because I I know the feeling that I had I've, that I've had inside of 770. I've been to 770 several times, and there's just this feeling of awe that like every single floorboard, every single nail, every single window just has the spirituality in it. And you watch these kids who claim that they they are believe in the ultimate religiosity tearing tearing it apart. It was it was so horrifying to me. And that's why I was so hurt and so struck by the way that this was becoming a joke because the destruction of this shul is like so, so sad. And I, I know now it's, you know, they've, they've actually tried to do some repairs and to rebuild it, but like, it's just not the same. It's not the 770 that the rebel walked through. It's not the 770 that that I know, right? Like it's, it's this weird experience. And I had it when... Um, you know, when when the attack on Tree of Life happened of this thing might be the same and it might look the same and Squirrel Hill might go back to, you know, having a, a, a building in Tree of Life that doesn't have bullet holes in it. But like, it's not the same because everything that's on top is just covering up what was destroyed. And that's pretty much what I've heard overwhelmingly from every Lubavitcher that I've spoken to for the last several weeks is that like, whatever the tunnels were and whatever is going to happen there, like, they're going to work that out. The Mishachis and Krinsky and whatever, they'll figure out a legit way to expand the shul because they're probably just going to do it now since they've already excavated it. They probably didn't care. Like, But it was that moment 
that fight, that 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 capacity to destroy the shul that's breaking everyone's heart. And I think that it's a moment of, it was a moment of introspection. It was a really hot moment where people were saying like, the tzvatim are out of control and they are us. They are a part of us. We can't claim that they're not. And what do we do about it? And especially the women that I know, it was interesting how struck so many women were because we, there isn't a fair, like the gender breakdown is not similar. There, There's not the same definitive line between mishichis and non-mishichis in, in Chabad women because we don't observe practices in the same way as men. So when men engage in, you know, they're, they're mostly, when they engage in public facing activities, when they engage in certain ritual practices, they get to choose, like, I'm doing this from a perspective of a mishichis, I'm doing this from a perspective of a non-mishichis. But as mothers and as wives and as women, we take on a certain mantle that's more internalized and then that struggle becomes very real. I have found myself many times asking myself, like, how do I teach to my kids that the Rebbe was bringing Mashiach, but the Rebbe didn't bring Mashiach, but the Rebbe isn't Mashiach? Like, there, there's more mixing and mold and 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 um and in the molding of these ideas for women because we don't define ourselves by like I went to this yeshiva versus I went to that yeshiva. And the seminaries and the high schools, they can also be mishichist and not mishichist, but it's very, the lines just aren't as clear. They're just much more blurred. So I think for women, it's also really difficult to figure out, we don't have this subgroup of extremist women because we connect to other women on so many other levels. So I can know a woman who deeply believes that the Rebbe never died and the Rebbe is 100% Mashiach, but what do I talk to her about? I talk to her about raising our kids and the minhagim that we give over to our children. And like, it, it just doesn't come up in the same way. But then you have these moments of introspection where you're like, wow, is my best friend who I know has these latent beliefs, like, does she think it was okay that they destroyed the shul? Like, what's happening here? I'm not totally sure. And so it was also a moment for, for me as a woman to think about what are other women feeling? And most of the women I know also felt that mainstream thing, but there, there were a couple of women, again, you know, on those WhatsApp chats where I felt like, oh, they, they might think this is okay. <laughs> like they like they might be proud to be the mothers of these boys. They might be proud to be the sisters of these boys. And that's deeply uncomfortable. And it's something that I've seen like keep coming, particularly over the last three months, right? And, and we've had all these, there's been so much heat in the Jewish community right now and so many heated arguments and discussions. And you also had these moments where like, and I've seen this, women go like full on Kahanas on you for a second. And you're like, whoa, like we normally talk about Chaitals, not like the absolute destruction of every single Arab in the globe. Like that was surprising to me. <laughs> I, I didn't know that's where you were going with that one. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a very similar issue that we're having here in Chabad too, uh, that even amongst women, you're like, I don't, I don't know what you believe about this. And I don't know that I'm totally comfortable talking about it either. I'm pausing because I, I'm really struck by that last point and want to share like so many personal moments where I've been like, wait, you believe that? What? Can we, we rewind every, the tape on our whole friendship so I can now read it through this understanding? Um, 
And it, it sounds like maybe in Chabad, men being Mashiachists or not, is it, they're more out about that part of their belief system, whereas for women, it's not what you're talking about, but also maybe just not what they're practicing out in the world. Yeah, and it's also like the functions of women in Chabad. The Rebbe was really, really supportive of women having active roles, not so much public roles, but feeling that they're very active as well in in the mission of Chabad, in the expansion of Chabad, in the teaching of Chabad. And so many Lubavitch women have this intense passion and this intense fire. I mean, if you, if you, if any of you know, like, uh, you know, Chabad, Shlucha, like the wife of the, the Rebetzin, you know, she is a powerhouse. She's not just sitting there like, can I offer you a cookie? Like there, it, they, it's the drama, it's the intensity, it's the passion. But underneath a lot of that is like our, our Mishikha's beliefs that I really didn't, I chose like not to see. And then again, I go back to Mushki and I'm like, Maybe Mushki's like super Mashiachist today. Like maybe if I met her today, I mean, her father was, and maybe she totally took in that belief and she never went to Tzfat as a yeshiva, but she's teaching her kids that the Rebbe never passed away and we do this and we do that. And like, maybe she totally is. And I could meet her in uh, like a shaitel place in Crown Heights and say, Mushki, I haven't seen you since we were six and have a totally normal conversation with her. But she totally believes that the shul should have been destroyed because the tunnels were found. Like, I, I, it, it, it blows my mind. In that situation, I guess something that I'm struggling to understand is like how it sounds like a lot of how you personally and how you perceived a lot of the Chabad community to feel about Meshechus is basically like maybe a little eye-rolly, maybe a little bit like, okay, like, I don't really want to engage with this, but I'm not like deeply offended by it. It ju I just think it's like a little over the top or something. And now, well, and I guess my question is like, has that changed? Is that still, it sounds like you feel like a little differently about it now than you did before. And I also just wonder like, how do we determine when we're talking to somebody, should we be trying to determine, like, is this person Meshachis? Like, does it, how much does it matter to you? I think that's a great point because there was a turning point, which is that the mainstream Lubavitch leadership immediately came out and said, these are extremists. These people do not represent the community. We see these people as outside of the norm, which is not the standard approach before that. The standard approach was like, everyone's having a, like, we're all having a Febringen and it's all nice. And then some guy got a little too shicker and said like, well, the rabbi never passed away. And then we all said, okay, okay, Marty, sit down. You know, and then we sort of moved on. And now there's a basis from which to say, there, there is a statement from Chabad leadership that these people are not to be accepted. They're not to be seen as mainstream. And so... You know, like I like I mentioned around the Rebbe's yard site, this is very common. People will share something, you know, forwarded many times on your WhatsApp group about, you know, some sort of something about the Lubavitch Rebbe never passed away. And now there's a competing image of a statement from Chabad leadership that says, 
these people don't represent us. You are extremists. These are not, these, these views and these ideologies are antithetical to our community and to the strength of our community. The other thing is that in the aftermath, something we have not seen is a story of like, you know, the big bad New York City is trying to come after the Wadavichers. And that's also a shift in the mindset. I mean, internally, the conversation has not been like, well, the city started all of this because why did they think that they could come in and, you know, check on the tunnels? They're just a bunch of anti-Semites who hate Lubavitchers. Internally, that's not really been the dialogue. And normally, when these kind of things happen that you think, oh, maybe this is going to be a shift. You know, maybe we'll talk about Chabad education now because the New York Times did this whole story. It usually backfires. It's usually like, no, it entrenches the idea that we are doing, you know, the Lord's work and the whole world is against us. And now it was the, because the reaction from the Tzvatim was so intense, it's so clear, like, like it's so pushed away any idea that New York City was coming after the Lubavitchers or like, you know, the cops were coming to instigate. If anything, they were thanked in the public statements, right? Like, thank you for coming, restoring the peace. And that's a, that's a huge shift. So I do think there's been a change. I just don't know what it's going to look like day to day, which is ultimately how extremism thrives. And that's, that's the biggest problem I think that we have as a community within Chabad is that we are such a day-to-day -day living community. We're all about the day-to-day. -day. We're all about the like, put up another mezuzah, bring someone else another kosher meal, like do the every day. And so if we have this extremist group, do we just allow them to do the every day and then occasionally just destroy our shul? Or do we say, you can't be in the day-to-day, -day. like you have to be outside of the community. Rabbi Mushki's father, you need to leave this community. You can't just be trusted to still do the mezuzah campaign and do the candlelighting campaign. You, you can no longer be here. And the reality of making those lines is that it is like mobbish and it's mafia-ish. And it's not really the public view of Chabad, which is super inclusive. So how do we manage those two? Because we have this view of ourselves as being great at PR and great at being inclusive and great at like finding a place for everyone and believing that everyone has a place. And yet, what do we do with this group that's clearly destroying us from the inside? So it's, it's a little bit of a nightmare for such a public community. And that was partially what was heartbreaking for me watching so many people mock it is that you, you're not in my community enough to be worried about this and to be sad about this. And you're, you're in a position where you can make fun and just walk away. But also knowing that we've sort of built our brand over the last 70 years on being this hyper public inclusive world of a mitzvah tank. Like who else goes out with a like ginormous RV and asks random people if they've put on filling or not? We don't, we don't do that. And many of our most passionate, excited individuals who keep the day-to-day -day going have these Mishachist beliefs. So what do we do about that? We're not a, you know, Saturday religion. We're a 24-7 go, go, go system. So it's really difficult to find that line. And something that that raises for me that I think I don't have a good understanding of as somebody who's an outsider to Chabad and has only really encountered Chabad in the sort of institutional outreach setting is as a Hasidus without a living Rebbe, 
right? As a Hasidic sect that doesn't have that single unifying spiritual leadership figure, what kind of institutional power exists to maintain those standards? Because there are individual Chabad houses all over the world that, you know, nobody's checking their credentials at the border, right? Like, what kind of Chabad are you before we allow you to set up a Chabad house in Nepal? Like nobody at that passport control is doing that. And so, but I'm hearing you talk about the, you know, the powers that be in a certain sense over at least 770 itself as headquarters, but also there are associations of shlichim, like of emissaries in some fashion. I don't really as an outsider, know how the org chart looks, you know, how, wh what structure is there? The answer is there are not a lot of sticks, but there are a lot of carrots, if that makes sense. So there are a lot of incentives to behave properly and appropriately and to run your Chabad house in ways that align with ultimately the Rebbe's mission and everything that, you know, the Rebbe set up and his emissaries, his, his immediate emissaries set up underneath him. There's a lot of incentives to do that. There's not a lot of sticks for when people step out of line. It is an opt-in system. So you opt in to be a shliach, you find the group that you are going to do your shlichus, your, your, you know, missionizing, unfortunately, for lack of a better word, towards obviously a Jewish group, not non-Jewish. You raise your own funds, you run your own system, but um, the Shluchim headquarters assist you with materials and framing. And, you know, if you're signed up for several Chabads, you'll get the same exact Bar Torah every Friday from all of them, right? So it, it helps you a little bit, but it's not controlling you and it's not telling you exactly what you have to do or what you can't do. There's also a lot of peer pressure. And I, I do mean that literally peer pressure. You have these, you know, chats, these WhatsApp chats with a bunch of shlichim on them. Someone will say something, you know, I, what do you think about doing this in this program? And a shlich will say, we tried that. It was terrible. Don't do it. It's going to look bad for your like Chabad house. So you do have a lot of carrots. You have a lot of positive ways of incentivizing certain behaviors. And you simply do not have a lot of sticks. That's all, um, particularly because, like you said, individual Chabad houses are run by individual shluchim. Now you have the head shliach in a certain territory and the shluchim underneath that head shliach do have to um, report to that head shliach, but the head shliach doesn't really have to report to anybody. They're maybe have to report to their donors sometimes to keep you know the funding coming. <laughs> But there really are not a lot of sticks. And that's part of the problem with Chabad in general. It's part of the problem with Breslov as well. Any Hasidic group that does not have a living Rebbe has that struggle. I will say, though, in Chabad, this was happening while the Rebbe was still alive. So it's not only because the Rebbe has passed away. There's something about Chabad as a Hasidic community. There's something about that Russian culture. There's something about the way that we operate as a social group that created these factions, even when there was head leadership to say, you know, the buck stops here. On the positive side of that, 
you do have individuals that go above and beyond what would be normal for anyone's view of like a normal life in order to actualize these this mission. And that's incredible and wonderful. And again, goes back to the whole question of, you know, what do we do about Mishachis? Because what if the Mishachis are the only people who are willing to go to South Dakota and be with only two other Jews for the rest of their lives? How do we keep those people out, but also keep them in? Do you feel like in the past few weeks, as the story has been coming out more and you have been thinking more personally and maybe talking with some of your friends about like, who do I know who actually believes this, who is okay with this kind of destruction? Like, do you have a sense of how you would respond in a moment if you were talking to another woman and suddenly it turned out that she was like, you know, related to one of these boys I also, I, I would be, I'm really curious about the language of, like, it does seem like it was young, quite young men who were involved in this. And I'm super interested in, like, why we think that it was in particular young men. But that's a second question. My, my first question is, like, do you have a sense of how you would react if you found out that somebody you were talking to was like this, but did believe this kind of thing? And, like, what what would you expect to happen in, you talked about in a WhatsApp group, but like what happens if you're at shul and somebody like stands up and says something like this? Like, what do you think is an appropriate response to a kind of like live event like that? I do think that I'm super comfortable. A lot of people aren't as comfortable being outspoken. They just want to be normal. They just want to seem normal. They want all of that. The other thing is, that this this defining line between mishichis and non-mishichis, I'm, I'm using it as if, you know, it's so official. Like, there's a group of people who believe the Rebbe's Mashiach, there's a group of people who just don't, and like, why would they ever spend time together and this belief is so fundamental and blah, blah, blah. In reality, there it's, there's like this low level of mishichisness that exists in everybody. And it forces you to confront that in a very uncomfortable way. So even myself, you know, I grew up in a Chabad community that was not Meshachis. So we were not allowed to learn these things in school. We didn't learn these things. And and these are these are not just, you know, the belief that the Rebbe is Mashiach. It's also a lot of writings about the Rebbe as Mashiach and framings of the, you know, the the words of the Rebbe and the words of all the Rebbe's from this perspective, reframing of the soul. I mean, it's like, it goes really, really deep because Chabad is like that as a, as a Hasidic group. And on some level, you tell yourself rationally, like, no, you don't believe that, nah. But then there's this other part of you that sort of does believe that what you're doing is driven by an idea that, you're, you know, making the Rebbe proud or doing something the Rebbe would have wanted or like we give this personification to the Rebbe. We, 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 we do still give the Rebbe this, this space, this physical space, you know, going to 770, going to the Rebbe's house, going to the aisle, even though that's where the Rebbe is buried. But you, you 
create this idea in your mind as if the Rebbe really is still here, even though you don't think of yourself as a Mishachist because it's not, you don't think of him as like this messianic figure who never died and you're not going to like set a seat for him. But you have these moments of deep spiritual connection where a part of you says like, I really feel like I'm making the Rebbe proud. Or, you know, you have his picture in your house or whatever it is. So part of the difficulty here is confronting that low-level, like, emotional connection that many of us have to a quote-unquote living Rebbe who isn't actually alive. And then you see the Meshachis, or you hear the Meshachis, and you have these discussions with the Meshachis, and, and you realize, like, whoa, these people are crazy. These people are nuts. But you can't just say that because then it becomes, well, do you really believe that the Rebbe is not still like in the world and has a plan for you? And 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 do you, you know, would, would you really just not think the Rebbe when you give a speech about your life or whatever? Like, so it, it goes further and further and further. When you name your son Menach Mendel, you're not thinking of the Rebbe. Like it, it gets to this point where these, this is my imitation of old Chabad specific men. Um, but it gets to this point where you have to confront in your own heart and in your own mind how you really feel about these things. And that's so deeply uncomfortable when on some level in order to, re to remain a Lubavitcher by name and identity, you do have to feel that the Rebbe is still there. You, you can't really believe the Rebbe is completely gone. And so... I think that's the biggest struggle ultimately. And you might say like, oh yeah, I mean, like I'm not crazy like that, but how crazy are you? Because we're all like a little crazy. So you you sort of have to be to be Lubavitch. You have to believe it. You you have to on some level think that you are a messenger of someone, that you are meant to be in this world for something, that the the outline of what that something is was provided by all seven of the Lubavitch Rebbe's, but particularly the last Rebbe. You have to believe that on some level. So what do you do with that now when you realize that the people who super believe that are extremists? Right, and there is something messianic in the small M kind of conceptual way about having a belief in the necessity and power of outreach. And the idea that if you build it, they really will come and you just kind of have to step forth and do something, right? There's a, there's a certain, you know, faith in something redemptive on a very small and local scale that has to drive every node of Chabad presence in the world. And I, I imagine it is hard to disentangle those things from true Mashiach's convictions. Yeah, and to the point where you have to, um, you know, like recently there was a rabbi in Rebbitzin in a community that I know well, trying to be a little vague here, who were there for over 15 years doing outreach, doing Kirov, building up a shul, and then they just got up and left and decided it didn't work for them anymore, like Litvish Kirov, not Chabad. And a couple of friends and I immediately said like, that's crazy. Like, cause if it was Lubavitch, like a shliach never leaves their post. Like wherever your shluchus is, that's where you are. 
Like it's done. So it's not just to do outreach. It's also to believe so firmly in the specific space of outreach that you are given and that you are sent to, that it is your mission to be in that spot. So if you are like in Allen, Texas with 10 other Jews, that is where you are. There is no, you know, I'd rather be in Crown Heights or, you know, there, there's there's none of that here. So you have to be able to believe so strongly in it. And on some level, deep, 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 deep in your heart, you say things like, the Rebbe would be so disgusted by this or the Rebbe would be so proud to see that. Like, so you do give that, like, you create that body and that soul and that existence of the Rebbe that's in the present tense that can make it really uncomfortable to confront these extremists. I'm having a hard time, Hannah, tying the Mashiachism to tearing down the walls of 770. Like, and, and I feel like you, you took me there and now I'm back to, wait, that belief that the Rebbe is still alive, why would that lead somebody to get arrested and destroy the building? Okay, so that's a good question. And there's two parts to this. So part one is like from a organizational perspective or an institutional perspective, you just had like a ton of institutional chaos with no chain of command and no actual leadership. And so it essentially turned into a riot. Like the same way that in any group, like any social group, there's just that like mob effect of like everyone just starts running in all different directions. And then the group that seems to be the most powerful when that happens, that's the thing everyone starts doing, even though they're not thinking about it. Like it's not rational. It's just a breakdown of like the social norms in that environment right then. And that's part of it. So you had this immediate reaction of like, how dare you come and try to fill up these holes and try to fill up these tunnels that we're creating. And like, we're so angry and we're so mad and we're lashing out. We're just going to destroy what's in front of us. And we've so forgotten that what's in front of us is actually holy because part of what extremists do is they turn the holy into the mundane. They don't turn the mundane into the holy. They actually take reg they take things that are actually holy and they utilize them to such a degree that they become mundane. So for example, if we might say like, let's say the Kotel, there are people who like just camp out in the Kotel 24-7 and they turn a holy site into something that's actually mundane. And that's what extremists do. A great example of this is Mara Tamaf Pela in Hebron. That's like the most like wild group of people just hanging out there all the time um, because extremists turn the holy into the mundane. And so it makes them forget that in fact, what they're in does have spirituality, it does have holiness because it becomes so normal to them that's the place where they always go. That's the place where they always hang out. And it's likely that that's how they were able to build the tunnels is because these like Svatim, these extremists, they hang out in 770 24-7. If you've ever been, 770 is like a shul and also a soup kitchen and also a settlement house. Like It's like a lot of different things at one time. And so you just had this breakdown in these like social norms and this extreme event that then led people to destroy what they now see as mundane, but which everyone around them sees as holy because everyone around them is not the extremist. So that's that's one perspective. But then you have the individual perspective of these young people who feel that if we don't go to the extreme, 
everything else we do is useless. So if you, if we can't believe that this is Mashiach's shul, if we can't believe that this is the shul in which like the Messiah currently exists, will continue to exist, expands to all boundaries and borders of the world, then like if you can't even understand that, you don't get any of it. You can't have any of this shul. So you have like both of those things happening at the same time. And I will add just kind of relatedly, a little bit of a, of, of a to me, of a connection here and, and something that I saw happening and, and built up to this. I, I don't know if you all saw, but a couple of weeks ago, there was an image of a Chabad house in Gaza. Uh, it was a very, yes, very poor image, in my opinion, of, you know, kind of this idea that the, the soldiers now had a Chabad house there in Gaza. The image that went around the world that presented to the world was an image of like essentially like domination across borders, right? Like we're now here. So since we're here, we need to settle down and put in roots and not, you know, fight a war and then allow the people who live here to continue to have their land, but rather that this war is essentially about expansion and it is about having a Chabad house everywhere just like Gaza. And similarly, the, the rhetoric around the world was like, haha, look at Chabad, like they'll be on the moon next. You know, like that's always kind of the joke, but there really is this expansion mindset that these extremists have and going there and doing that, even though again, it actually was, there were some people who were saying that was super in bad taste and that picture should not have gone around the world and it's an embarrassment, but it's sort of a sign of, of what happens underneath all of these layers fairly constantly is there's this expansion, there's a statement of expansion, a statement of like, we're going to conquer, we're going to go further. And people say, uh, that doesn't look great, but it doesn't go much further than that. And here was that moment where it was like, that doesn't look great goes beyond looks. It goes into actually tearing down this community and this belief that you are not in this, you are not as dedicated to this as you need to be, and therefore we will destroy it for you because you don't deserve any of it. As well as we as a social group have so lost our ability to see this as holy, we just see it as any other building that can be torn down and rebuilt because it's not meeting the purpose we want it to meet. That was a really helpful sociology lesson using this. Yeah, thank you. It is amazing the the many layers <laughs> To, to all of this. And it has been so, so helpful to hear from you, Hannah, and just to kind of better understand all of the context for all of this. And I'm just really grateful for your time. So it has come time for us to uh, talk about our recommendations, our endorsements for the month. Mimi, what do you have for us? I have two small ones. Um, one is... I. As you all know, I live in the Boston area and my daughter was born in February. And so I've been stressing for a while about where do you throw a birthday party in such a cold season? Like, I don't want to pay for a play space. And shout out to Shul. What you do is you sponsor Kiddush and you get your friends to lead a Tashabat and you invite your crew and you basically have a birthday party. And I'm just so grateful to my shul and to my friends that like, I, I just feel really held by my community. I'm very excited. That is a brilliant idea. That is a fabulous Jewish life hack. Yeah. It, it just 
feels very Hamish. And as people who have listened before know, my daughter walks into show like she owns the space. So <laughs> I think this might be feeding the beast, but I'm I'm really excited. My second endorsement, we haven't spoken since Hanukkah, and I shout out to my sister, Addie, who gave me the most amazing present that I want you all to know about. Um, Rancho Gordo is an heirloom bean company, beans like chickpeas, black beans that you eat. And they have a sampler pack. Um, It's called the Desert Island Sampler. So there are six beans that the Rancho Gordo people would take to a desert island. Um, It's such a great winter gift because it forces you to like think about stews and chilies and cooking things for long periods of time. Um, And I just have to say, like, this is better than canned beans. I am really loving these beans. So that's my second endorsement. Thank you. (laughs) Amazing. My partner is a huge Rancho Gordo fan. We have so many Rancho Gordo beans in my house. And my problem with the Rancho Gordo beans, at least the one that he buys, are like, they're weird beans. And I'm like, I don't have any recipes that calls for this weird bean I've never heard of. <laughs> like, I'm like, I just want a plain black bean, man. Come on. So with the Desert Island sampler, you might need the recipe book then tomorrow. <laughs> we bought the recipe book because I kept being oh. like, why do you keep getting me these weird beans? <laughs> um, okay. <laughs> Sorry, that was, that was an unnecessary bean time on my part. <laughs> Uh, Zahava, what do you have to endorse? More bean content than I was expecting. Um, Okay, so I have an escapist endorsement this week, um, this month, because I need some things in that category these days. And I wouldn't have originally thought to endorse this on the podcast because at first I would not have thought this was in any way Jewish. So I'll get there. But so there is a fantasy trilogy um, and not one of the heavy dystopian ones called the Noctis Magicae trilogy. I don't know if I'm get that, getting that exactly right, but the three books are called The Midnight Queen, Lady of Magic, and A Season of Spells. It's a sort of fun alternative Regency England history um, where the long-lost daughter, hidden daughter of the king sort of is discovered and is also like a cool feminist academic and is also on like a adventure to save various aspects of the kingdom as one does in fantasy novels. It's by a writer named Sylvia Izzo Hunter. And I recently recommended this trilogy to someone else. And I, so I had the author's name in mind. And then I was on social media and saw her just responding to a thread that I was reading. I'm like, oh, I I recognize that name. I click on it and her social media bio says Shul President. Um, so I had no idea. There's no Jewish content in these books, but it turns out she is both a shul president and lives in my area. So maybe I'll run into her one of these days. Probably someone listening to this podcast from my Toronto crew is going to be like, oh yeah, Sylvia, I sing with her in choir on weekends. Um, (laughs) but, uh, they are really fun books and on the well-written but light side of fantasy novels, not like the whole world is in peril fantasy novels and I don't need any more world peril at the moment, so I recommend. That sounds really fun. I love finding out that someone that I know also has written an excellent book. Hannah, what do you have to endorse? 
So I just want to endorse uh, being kind to people who are experiencing homelessness, and which is a very, very difficult thing in this time of year, I think, particularly because we might have assumptions about where people should be when it's cold. And instead of having those assumptions, we can carry around socks and gloves and things like that and hand them out to people as we see them. So that's that's my endorsement. I know a lot of people who experience homelessness with current experience of homelessness too, who have told me that these kind of interactions are incredible and life-saving for them. So even just keeping around socks is helpful and feel free to hand them out to people. That's a great endorsement. Thank you. I often volunteer with a group in Philly and socks are like the first thing that gets used up when we do distribution of supplies. So it's a really good tip. My endorsement is um, a book that I just finished reading. It's called In Memoriam. It's by a writer named Alice Wynn. And it is about two men who are in uh, like a posh um, high school in England right at the start of World War One. One of them enlists and eventually the other one enlists. They're in love with each other but not really aware of it for a while or not really open to, to that. One of them is from a Jewish family and is perceived by his peers as being Jewish, although he tells everyone he's, he's Church of England and when he is perceived by others as Jewish, he takes offense. His Jewishness is a very small part of the book, but it really, it paints such a perfect picture of, I think, the complexity of Jewish identity and and people who don't want to be perceived as Jewish versus people who do want to be perceived as Jewish. The book is just incredibly beautiful. And, you know, it's a book about World War One, so it is dark, but I will say it doesn't actually have a really sad ending. It has, in fact a really beautiful uplifting ending, which is like not often true about queer historical love stories. So um, nice to nice to have it in this case. And I didn't know this until after I finished this book, but the book is partially based on um, two real men, one of whom is somebody who whose poetry I was quite familiar with, Wilfred Owens, who is um, an incredible poet who died at the very end of World War I. Um, and he had a very close relationship with a man named Siegfried Sassoon, who was, um, in fact, uh, part of the Sassoon family of India and Baghdad. He did not identify as Jewish. In fact, he, he, he did survive the war and convert to Catholicism at the end of his life, but was very much perceived by others around him as, as Jewish for much of his life. And so... I didn't know anything about him before reading this book, but the book is incredible, and I encourage you to learn a little bit about both Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon, both incredible writers and poets and really beautiful stories for for both of them. All right, we made it. Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. Thank you so much, Chana, for joining us this this month. It was such a joy to have you and to get so much <laughs> background that we really would not have otherwise had. Thanks to Jordan Daniel Mills for editing our show. If you have a minute, please leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or let us know what you'd like us to discuss. On a future episode, we're always looking for suggestions. You can leave a comment on a post on our Facebook page, search for Jewish Public Media, or on our website, jpmedia.co, choose Talking and Shul from the list of podcasts. 
You can also donate to Jewish Public Media, which is a really great way to make sure that we can bring you a new episode every month. Sahava, thank you so much. Thank you. This was great. Mimi, thank you so much. This was fun as always. Kana, thank you once again. Thanks for inviting me. We will see you next month. Thank <laughs> you.